The thoughts and opinions on Just Some Podcast are of the hosts and guests and do not represent the views of organizations that employ them or they volunteer for. They are also not responsible for spontaneous black holes or nuclear wars that may occur. You have been warned. You're listening to Just Some Podcasts, and here's your hosts, Ben and Tom. Welcome, welcome, everybody, to another episode of Just Some Podcasts for Advanced Practitioners. I'm Tom. And this is Ben. So, Ben, how's your week been? This week has been a little better than last week. Uh, You know, last week I had some uh, grumpy days and may have made some... uh, Comments that I shouldn't have made to my boss in regards to some things I wasn't happy about, but you know, hey, it's a much better week this week, and getting some scheduling things ironed out, and things are much better my way. Tom, how's things yours way? Well, uh, apparently I picked up your grumpiness, which for people that don't know us, Ben is generally the happy-go-lucky part of this duo, and I am the perpetual Eeyore slash Oscar the Grouch of the group, so this is really, we're just pretty much back to status quo. Yeah, pretty much, yeah. Um, so two things, uh, I guess for me this week is, uh, should be happy and we could talk about this some more here in a second is looking at getting a new tattoo and we could talk about tattoos and healthcare, but let me just go on a little thing about home care versus healthcare. I am not a handyman. Let's just be clear about that. And there's gonna be plenty of jokes about this, but apparently, uh, using caulk in the corner of my bathtub did not work out well for me, nor did buying a door. See, we went to the place. I'm not going to name the, the place, but it was a wide, nationally known appliance place. What and I said, hey, do what? What does it rhyme with? Um, Shmom Meepo. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, hey, uh, by the way, the guy was totally cool. He answered all my questions. And I was like, yep. Yeah. Uh, I, my wife wants a new front door and a new storm door. Bingo, bingo. We're buying us a new door, right? Seems simple, correct? Very simple sounding. Well, in theory, here's what I found out though, is that, um, most doors come with a frame to put into your house. That is correct. Well, okay. Uh, that's not how it was displayed at the store and nor was that part of the information I was given. So, all of a sudden, there's this door in a frame. I'm like, okay, so we just took it off the hinges out of the frame. Guess what? It doesn't fit. Well, the the frame, the hinges and stuff don't match, and they're molded. So, now, I'm having to hire a whole person to come put this into my house. That's that's what's happening with me right now. I've hung doors in the house one time. We ended up converting a one of our living areas into a bedroom for our children. And so, we hung a double set of doors in to close off that room and that's probably the closest that my wife and i got to divorce was hanging those doors it is a pain in the ass even with the frames it's it's still not easy it took us like it slid in perfectly and we were like awesome this is great and then the other shoe dropped and you couldn't get the doors to shut because it wasn't lined up right you had to jimmy the doors certain ways you had to jimmy the or shim the the frame and then re and it was it was a pain in the ass. I will never, ever do it again. 
this is just, and I don't want anyone to think I'm mad at the contractors or anything. God bless these people because I clearly can't do it. Uh, my wife is my personal little Bob Vila. Uh, she loves to do all this type of stuff, but she obviously can't just take off work for half a day to come hang a door. So I'm just going to go ahead and pay the contractor. Besides that, I would divorce her because it's not an interior door, Ben. It's the front door to my house. If I came home and there was no damn front door, there I don't. There's not enough, enough tranquilizer within a five mile radius of me to put down what would happen when I came home and had to deal with that. So let's just let's just be clear that Tom's week is looking up. So, and I guess that brings me to the next thing that we can talk about for a minute here is. I saw that uh, somewhere in Indiana, I want to say it's the University of Indiana's health system, they are now allowing nurses to openly display tattoos. And this week, I contacted a very nice tattoo shop in a local area of mine, and I am planning on getting a upper arm sleeve. So it's still something I can hide. Like, I know there's still that bias against people with tattoos to some patients but it's still something i'm going to plan on getting done and i hope someday that we can openly have tattoos to an extent i mean i do understand there is a certain amount of professionalism but i don't think tattoos should have to be hidden anymore and that's just my personal perception i think so that probably depends on what the tattoo is also like you know if it's a dry metal finger patients it's probably not the best uh, tattoo to be displaying but no i agree i mean i think times are changing and i assume that policies over time will change as well i like we talked about last week i have several tattoos as well all of mine are hidden but i don't see a concern with it well no and that's what i'm getting back to the professionalism it's one thing to have a tattoo of like a koi fish on your arm okay but yeah if you have like a v- naked valkyrie riding a lightning bolt with a middle finger in the air probably something you shouldn't have on your forearm just throwing that out there probably not but i kind of want to see that tattoo now (laughs) i may or may not have arrested people in the past with similar type tattoos and i'm like hey uh that's not bad (laughs) (laughs) nice when you can appreciate that as you're putting them in handcuffs right yeah well yeah well you do see a lot of their forearms when you're putting people on handcuffs just saying but yeah it's also funny though and i don't know how people do it people that have gotten tattoos from their friends like you're 16 years old and you're drunk and you're like, yeah, you could tattoo me. I want an awesome snake on my, on my arm. Holy cow. Like some of the things I have seen and the, there's whole websites dedicated to bad tattoos. Oh, I want a snake on my arm. And then it looks like a drunk earthworm. Uh, oh yeah. That's, that's what I'm saying. Oh, there it is. It is pretty hilarious. So my tattoos, like when somebody actually said, when I said where I was going to go, they're like, Oh, that guy's really expensive. I was like, yeah, he's putting ink into my skin with a needle that it's going to stay there permanently. I'm okay with paying extra for something I want. Quality over quantity, all right, Tom? That's what I usually go for. So, what's the story this week, Mr. Ben? Well, you know, normally we do a story that you may have missed, and this week... I'm going to kind of mix it up on you a little bit, and we're going to do a story that most people probably have not missed. There is another podcast out right now that I believe the last story I read had like 23 million downloads. That's crazy. Right? It is on... I mean, he's almost he's almost in our league. <laughs> almost. Almost. But it is the Dr. Death podcast. So for those who may not be aware, 
It is about a neurosurgeon in the Dallas area that had significant complications with a lot of his patients. I believe, if I remember correctly from the podcast, it was uh, 37 surgeries and 33 had complications like paralysis or death. It's also the first case of a physician being criminally charged for what occurred during a surgery. And so I got to thinking about that as I was listening to the podcast because I had several people say, you need to listen to this. And so now I have told several people, you need to listen to this. It got me thinking from like a family practice standpoint that this may, obviously 23 million people, a lot of the general public is listening to this. We need to be knowledgeable of the fact of who we're sending our patients to. Well, I was just thinking at 23 million people, that's that's beyond extended family. I'm <laughs> just saying, when you said that a lot of the public, I'm like, well, well, yeah, unless this guy's got, you know, a large family. I don't I don't think that's all his cousins. I'm just throwing that out there. Well, he's currently sitting in prison, so he's probably not listening to it. But, you know, it was a very interesting story, and it was very tragic to what happened to those patients. And it also focused on the healthcare system in general and the ways that we need to do better about protecting the general public. I was going to say, well, as, as someone that hasn't listened to it, I've downloaded it. You are, I'm one of the people you said, Tom, you need to listen to this. I, okay. So I've downloaded it. I have not listened to it yet. So is it looking at it from the point of view of like prosecution, like making a murderer on Netflix? Like how exactly is it being portrayed? It's being portrayed as a reporter reporting on this story that was told. And then it turned into so much more than that. There was several other surgeons involved. They reported it to the board numerous times. I mean, there was lots of failures in the system throughout the entire caveat of this, of these events. And you think, well, maybe this happened a long time ago. Like, you know, maybe things are better now. This was 2012. His last case was in 2013. I mean, as far as case, like surgical case was 2013. So we're, that's not a long time ago. Wow. And so, I mean, I think it's an interesting podcast. I think it does show that, like I said, from a family practice standpoint, we just need to be knowledgeable of, you know, because our patients trust us and trust us to send them to people who could take care of them appropriately. And that's what these people did was they, you know, got referred to this neurosurgeon, this neurosurgeon and with an anticipation of getting better, and they ended up either paralyzed or dead. Well, that's generally not what I go to a neurosurgeon for. Well, that's correct, yeah. Well, it sounds like a great podcast. I've seen other websites talk about it briefly. Every, it was weird. Ben told me about this. Actually, I think one of our other friends told both of us. Yes. I think it was, as a matter of fact, it was Sam the Fact Checker. It was. Told us. Yeah, he's shaking his head. Excitedly now, yeah. Excitedly, like a puppy with a milk bone versus Kyle, the sound engineer, just shaking his head in shame. So Sam tells us about it. Then Ben's like, yeah, I started listening to it. You really need to listen to it. So now I'm fully prepared. But ever since you guys have mentioned it, I've seen it. I've seen Z-Dog cover it on Facebook. I've seen a couple other things. So now I'm like, well, hell, now I really got to get on here and see what it's about. So, Ben, before we go further into the episode, I, I think you know what time it is. It's social media time, isn't it, Tom? It's social media time. If you want to join the conversation and hit us up, you can hit us up on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter, all at Just Some Podcast. Or you can reach us on our website, www.justsomepodcast.com, and our email is admin at 
justsomepodcast.com. I actually did get an email from a listener that had listened to our first episode and went back and listened to it and had made a comment about the static that it had happened. And so I think we're using this new software. So I think we've improved that dramatically, at least from what I've heard. I've got lots of positive feedback on since we've flipped to the new software. However, uh, there is one person and, and he's, he's a person I know well. So it's kind of funny. He's just like, dude, you've got to get rid of that music at the beginning. And I'm like, no. I like the beginning music, and it's staying. John, wherever you're at, I want you to hear me loud and clear. Until we get at least one other person, and with 15 listeners, that's a large percentage of our crowd. Until someone else tells me to get rid of that, it's staying, boyo. It's staying. And let's be honest, before we record, we listen to that, and we sit here and dance like idiots. So, I mean, we both enjoy them. Yeah, we can both see each other, and yeah, we're just like dum da dum, shaking our heads. Oh, it's it's like our uh, it's like that scene in Gone in sixty seconds. They have to listen to Lowrider before they go out and steal the cars. That's kind of our uh, that's our inner Sandman, if you will, our uh, pump up music. Because it's running to the core. That's right. Sorry, Virginia Tech. We got one more music uh, louder than you, and it's uh, well elevator music. So. Let's get this party rolling here. So I think the first, we're going to be tackling flu today, influenza, since it's flu season. Say we are just, you know, according to the CDC, we're actually like in week 39 right now of the year. And between now and about week 50, which is kind of getting through the end of the year, obviously, that's when we start seeing the high upticks of starting to see the flu virus. So we thought might as well be timely and... Do a flu episode. Well, if we're anything, we're timely. Absolutely. Absolutely. So uh, I think I think we kind of broke it down into how we look at the whole treatment of flu and everything in, in the general sense. Uh, Kyle, the engineer, I just accidentally hit my mic. Please take care of that at the appropriate time. We're not paying you for nothing good, sir. So the first thing we're going to discuss are the signs and symptoms of the old influenza virus. And I will point out, a lot of this research, first of all, it all seems repetitive. So I went to multiple sites. I went to the big boys. I went to some of the littler sites just to see what was out there. And they all pretty echo the same information. So no matter where you're going for your information or what source you use, you're probably going to get pretty much the same information in all four of the sections we're going to cover here. And so your main signs and symptoms that you're going to see with your patient that's going to walk in with flu is they're going to have that fever. They're going to have headaches, and they're going to feel like they've been ran over by a truck most times. That is uh, correct. So the the very first thing, and I try and be, well, let's face it, the majority of our patients, they're going to say, oh, yeah, I have a fever. I've had a fever for three days. And then I'm going to go, okay, well, what's it been running? And they're going to go, well, I didn't actually take it. It just felt like a fever. So let's let's suppose you actually have Dr. Quinn Medicine Woman out there. If she decided to actually take his or her temperature, 100.4 is what the CDC actually says. That's our threshold for fever. That's what we need to start worrying about when the patient says they have fevers. Otherwise, you can interchange safely at some point that they were possibly having fever-like activity if they were talking about chills. If they're like, oh man, I was, you know, just all over the place, body aches, chills, cough, uh, runny nose, and like you said, the just feels terrible, the fatigue, the body aches, the headaches, those are all tried and true symptoms of influenza. 
Well, remember what that cough, it's also, at least in the beginning stages of influenza, unless we're looking at secondary infections, but it's going to be non-productive. Exactly. So there was actually a very cool little tool I found on the CDC's website. By the way, uh, CDC, Mayo, American Lung Association, all well-known sites, they all echoed pretty much the same information. So, and, and usually also with the nasal discharge, you're going to have, it's going to be usually clear. You're just going to have that clear drainage from the nose. Uh, the only big difference between parents and the children, which is not hard and fast. There are no hard and fast rules, by the way. Let's just point that out when we're talking about fluenza, all the way from symptoms to treatment, you, there's always a mix. Okay. But generally vomiting and diarrhea are going to be more on the child side and rare in adults. Nausea is pretty much universal, but usually if they're actually having vomiting and diarrhea, it's probably going to be on the child side. So, you know, the other sign that I think if people have seen more than about five influenza patients will recognize is that across the room look of you can just tell they're sick. You know, you have that acute ill presentation, like I said, most times whenever I see them in the office and I knock on the door and I was like, hey, you know, I'm being, you know, taking care of you today. And you're like, oh, damn, you're sick. <laughs> exactly. Versus the uh, 15-year-old that's sitting there laughing, joking, texting on their phone. They're like, hmm, it's a 10 out of 10 pain. I'm terrible. Versus the person that looks like if I said literally there's nothing I can do for you, we're going to have to shoot you like a horse. They'd be like, okay. Those are the ones that I generally don't have to look at very much longer to say, I think I know where we're going with this. Some of the biggest risk factors for having influenza are going to be age, your living and work conditions, which can include like living in a dorm, do you work in a nursing home, etc. Uh, your immune system, any ongoing illness, uh, pregnancy, and obesity are all major risk factors for having influenza. Now, have you seen any yet? We, I've not seen any personally this year yet, but I know I've seen a Facebook post earlier today that it's positive in this area. We've had our first couple of positive cases. Uh, we have had at least one positive case. However, I have not personally seen anything that I have diagnosed specifically with influenza, which again, people we're going to cover here shortly. But now with the combination of symptoms and we were talking about this earlier off the air, you know, there's the different diagnoses, acute upper respiratory infection is something I go with if they have similar symptoms, but I don't know positively that we're going to be going with influenza. So I have done several of those, uh, but those also fall cold, like symptoms, etc. as long as well with that. Yeah. It's a nice catch all. It is. And in generally in family clinics, sometimes that's all you're going to have. Back to where we were at earlier, the nice thing to talk to the patients about is the symptoms themselves. Generally, we could talk to them and say, hey, you're only going to have symptoms, according to the CDC, from 2 to 14 days. Like, that's generally... Now, granted, 14 days of feeling like crap is bad. Yeah, that would be bad. <laughs> Nobody wants that. But that's also on the long side, and two days would be great, but let's face it, usually we're talking about seven-day period for most people. That's generally what I tell patients, too, is you're going to feel like crap for a few days, and that could be anywhere from, I, you know, I tell people five to seven, um, but yeah, I think that's kind of the sweet spot, like you're saying, in that seven-day time frame for it. 
Well, when I talk to people and when I say that five to seven, I generally go, look, you might feel a little crappy now. The worst is going to be that five to seven day range. And you might still have some lingering effects, but you'll be getting over it. So that's generally how I describe it to my patients. When we're seeing patients in the office, though, according to all the major websites and all the governing bodies, the the real emergency symptoms that we need to be filtering for within the clinic is shortness of breath, cyanosis, lethargy in children, and confusion in adults. Those are all telltale signs of that this influenza is either hitting them harder than anticipated or it is causing a complication that is now affecting other body systems. I have seen lethargy in children to the point that I've called a pediatrician on call. I'm like, look, this kid's sick. Like, we probably need to put this kid in. And it ended up being they had such a high fever, you know, 102s, 103s, that when they get like that, they're just very lethargic. And so we had to do testing anyway, so we gave them some fever reducer and sent them out for testing, brought them back to the clinic 20 minutes later, and the kid's bouncing around like nobody's business. Now, they were still sick, but they were not that extreme lethargic laying there in mom's arm just kind of bleh. You probably need to know the difference between are they lethargic because they got a high fever or are they lethargic because they got something else going on. Well, one of the things uh, we did in ENPC when we were instructing that to new nurses is we'd say, talk to the parent. Like, if the kid's just laying there and you're like, oh my God, he's lethargic, but the parent's like, no, he's always like this right after his nap. He's probably, you know, it's probably nothing that you need to be, you know, up in arms about. But if the parent is like, no, this is, I've never seen this. He has never done this before, etc. And then you've got that pale or that blue coloration we're talking something much, much worse and that you need to take it seriously. Worst case scenario is he isn't that sick and we take the emergency precautions. We send him to an ED, et cetera. We call a pediatrician, whatever we need to do. And they're like, Oh, it's not that big a deal, which is way better than we just treat it as, Oh, don't worry about it. And then the kid goes home and starts having seizures, et cetera. And the condition just gets what much worse. Yeah, I mean, you, you'd hate to overlook something and be like, oh, I'm sure it's no big deal. I'm sure it's just because of the high fever and just give them some fluids. And then, you know, you're reading an obituary a couple of days later and you're like, oh, shit, that wasn't good. Which has not happened to me yet, but I am desperately, obviously, trying to avoid it. And I think that's one of the reasons we do the podcast is we don't want anybody else to get that way either. And just to clarify, that's not happened to me either. Let's just throw that out there, Tom, because... <laughs> Wait, a new Dr. Death episode 13. <laughs> the podcast bandits. So <laughs> I already see it. So some of the complications, Ben, that I saw in my websites, it can actually cause sinus infections, ear infections. The big one that you need to worry about, though, is pneumonia, especially in the elderly, which is According to all the websites, 65 and older is what their general guidelines are, or below two years old. After that, you have people with compromised immune systems, uh, chronic medical conditions such as asthma or COPD, and you have to worry about them getting septic or pneumonia are the two biggest things. And we all know that once you become septic, the mortality rates just skyrocket. And pneumonia is the other one that I work really hard to educate my patients on when I diagnose them with either influenza or influenza-like illness is, you know, hey, if we're at six, seven, eight, nine days 
and your cough's getting productive and your lungs don't feel good and you feel like, you know, there's some sitting on your chest and you're just feeling worse when you should be feeling better, get your ass back into the clinic. Let's recheck this out. We may need to do x-rays because we may be looking at a secondary infection like a pneumonia. We don't want to sit on that. A lot of people, for some reason, and I still haven't figured this out, they want you to diagnose them over the phone. And I always say, okay, ask them what they think about the shirt I'm wearing. And we're like, well, I can't see it. I'm like, exactly my point. So I can't see or feel your lungs or uh, hear your lungs over the phone either. If you want me to talk to you about this or diagnose you, you probably need to be where I can actually listen to you or, or see you. Like, that's how this works. What do they think of the shirt I'm wearing? That's pretty good, Tom. I like that. Oh, yeah. And, and it, oh, usually it's an immediate response. They get it like, well, I can't see your... Oh, exactly. <laughs> Wait a um, the, Yeah, because one of the things, you know, you're wanting to listen for is that, you know, uh, decreased air movement through the lungs. Are we having that wet or tight sound all of a sudden that wasn't there prior how am I supposed to know that over the phone? I'm not going to take a guess. You know, if you want me to, to deal with this, that's fine, but you have to be somewhere where I can actually treat you. No, I agree with you. The next one, which is a landmine, I'm kind of like just, I'm circling it on my little notepad here in front of me, is prevention of influenza and vaccination. Dum, dum, dum. Well, I think prevention's pretty easy to cover, right, Tom? I mean, hand washing. Wash your damn hands. <laughs> I think we just talked over each other. So let me say it again. And then Ben, uh, wash your damn hands. Yeah, that's, that's prevention 101 right there for influenza or any significant contagious illness would be hand washing. That's why the uh, infection control people come up and watch you on the floor and make sure that you're washing your hands like you're supposed to. And that's why they educate you. And that's how we stop infections. I know you know that, but sometimes it's a good reminder to hear that. Wash your hands. Yeah, and uh, the only other real suggestions, which I'm just still flabbergasted that in 2018, we're still having to deal with this, but hand washing is number one. Covering your mouth during sneezes or coughs are number two. Yeah, I'm kind of laughing while I'm right. And number three is if you don't feel well, stay away from other people. Those are the three primary ways that the CDC has determined we can prevent influenza. It sounds pretty shut, you know, open and closed case to me there, Tom. Well, it's also something I learned in kindergarten. I, I'm sure we spent a billion dollars figuring it out, though. That's government work for you. Kindergarten, first grade, second grade, third grade. <laughs> and it's on all the exactly. elevators, like in the hospitals, you know, like, hey, if, you got, if you're sick, don't come to the hospital to visit people. If you're coughing and you're going to be around people, wear a mask and wash your damn hands. Just so if anybody from the CDC is listening, which I know you're not, but if you were, I want you to know that that was a little dig at you about spending money. I really, if nobody knows what the CDC does, it is truly one of the most amazing and awe-inspiring government agencies that may exist, period. I mean, they are just fantastic in every way, and they try to make sure that every resource that they use they extend out to help us, especially providers. So if you don't know about the CDC, maybe that's a whole episode we can do sometime, Ben, is on the CDC. I mean, they are just fantastic people. So that was just a minor dig at spending government spending more than it was the CDC. I just want to be clear about that. Another thing that I found was there's a randomized trial that found if you use the combination of hand hygiene and face mask, 
when implemented within 36 hours of symptoms, prevents the household transmission of flu as well. So if you educate your patients on, hey, you know what, if you wash your hands at home and if you get dad who's got the flu, if he wears a mask around the house also when he's going to be around people, we can prevent potentially the rest of the family from getting it. Well, I would like to say that that's going to happen, but if we have to remind people to continue to wash their hands, and that's been common knowledge since the Crimean War, I'm pretty sure that's not going to help us too much anymore. I, I'm just saying, we're going to be saying this for the rest of time is what I'm getting at. That's okay, Tom. We're going to keep fighting the good fight. Keep educating. <laughs> we're going to keep... So, okay, so since since I know we're probably going to do a future episode on vaccines, and I do sound downtrodden because, again... We're still uh, anti-vaxxers. I I just don't get it. But uh, so some of the statistics on flu shots is it clearly reduces the risk between 40 and 60 percent less likely to get influenza if you have the vaccine shot. And a study from 2016 through 2017 stated there was 5.3 million cases of reported influenza with 85,000 hospitalizations due to influenza. That's just influenza. Like they, I don't, I don't know if that includes the further complications like pneumonia, which I would assume it would make it much higher, but it's the way it looked from the way I was reading it, it looked like just influenza alone, 85,000 cases. Yeah. And yeah, flu vaccines in particular ones that, tend to be more polarizing, I think, than some of the other vaccines outside of the Gardasil. The Gardasil is still probably the most polar- polarizing of the vaccines. And when I mean polarizing, I mean either you're for it or you're against it, and those people dig in their heels in, and you're not going to sway them either way. And there seems to be some of that with the flu vaccine as well. Like, some people are just adamant against not getting it, and some people are, you know, very pro-vaccine, like they probably should be. I know that a lot of healthcare entities and systems mandate that either as an employee, you'll either get the flu vaccine or you'll wear a mask for the entire time. Now, I have seen some stories the last year or so, very sporadic, of people challenging that in the legal system, which is a whole different ordeal that we probably don't even have time to get into. Well, we don't, and it, but it's, it's sad that we're having to because here's – I, I, and again, this is a personal opinion on, on the, the fact. It, the fact, outside of my personal opinion, is it does reduce your chance of catching influenza or spreading influenza. Like, that's a proven fact. 40 to 60% less chance. Like, there you go. Personally, we're here to take care of patients. If there is anything we can do to help prevent the transmission of influenza or catching it so that we can continue to treat patients then why are we not doing it? I don't care if it was a 5% chance. As long as there's no detrimental side effects, why should we not be doing something that is proactive to help our patient population? That's a valid point, Tom. Sam the fact checker not only gave us a thumbs up, he actually stood up, clapped, and saluted. So I'm just saying we're doing something right here, people. But you make a good point. Hence why I said valid point. Um. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for reinforcing it. If you don't get the flu shot, and it, it, or even if I, yeah, if you don't get the flu shot, you could potentially shed this virus for several days prior to spiking the fever and showing symptoms of influenza, and then therefore that twenty-four to forty-eight hours that you're potentially shedding the virus, 
are you taking care of COPD patients that are already going to be immunocompromised and now we've potentially risked giving them an infection? Yeah. Are you a family nurse practitioner and now you have seen, oh, a couple kids on their uh, well checks and they're two years old and now you've given a two-year-old influenza? I mean, there's a lot of reasons why it's a good thing to do. And I am not trying to say that Everyone has to think the same way or do things the same way all the time. But this is one of those few watershed events where we can say, hey, you can do this one thing and it can help protect your patient population. We should probably be doing it. And that's just the opinion of this podcast, I think. And I know one of the arguments is it's not 100% effective. You're right. It's not. You're not, and as a matter of fact, the CDC goes into great detail about that when they're talking about how they formulate their vaccines and what they're doing, and that it is, in fact, a guess, but also part of what affects its effectiveness. Well, i got to think of a better way to say that, but what impacts it is the lack of people using it therefore makes it less effective overall. And so they're like, Hey, you know, it was this effective for the population that used it. If everybody had used it, it would have been even more effective. It's one of the things I was reading. Yeah. And you know, for the people who say, well, it's not hundred percent effective. Tell me something that is, I mean, even condoms are like 99.7% effective as far as preventing pregnancy. So particularly in this career where you're exposed to lots of things, and this, I mean, this, it's imperative that we get the flu vaccine as healthcare providers to ensure that we are protecting our patients, but also the patients that I have seen like last year, because I know last year is one of the ones that kind of took the ding in as far as uh, people saying, you know, the flu vaccine wasn't effective, you know, well, it was only 30% effective. Okay. That's 30% of people who didn't get the flu that possibly could have. But the cases that I seen, they were much milder compared to the patients who had not had the flu vaccine. You could potentially ease yourself from having five to eight days of feeling like shit to only a couple of days with some, you know, mild fevers and just kind of not feeling well, but not being to that extent of horribly ill. By the way, Ben, uh, 100% chance that I can piss off anybody at any time. That that's a guarantee, my friend. I've seen it. It's true. Uh, if, if I met the Dalai Lama, he'd be like, I'm going to get reincarnated just to come back and deal with you, Tom Shore. I'm like, I know that's what level I'm at. Dalai Lama get here. <laughs> I'm just going to go past that. Uh, <laughs> so some of the reason that the flu vaccine is not hundred percent effective is that like you said earlier, it's, it's an educated guess on what flu strains we've seen last year and the flu virus is cyclical. So it travels around the, the world. So like, as you know, we're not seeing flu here, we're seeing it on the other side of, of the world. And so we're kind of watching the way that it mutates. And I say we, as in like the FDA and the CDC, but they're watching how it mutates. And then they're trying to make the best educated guess as to what it's going to look like when it gets here. Now it's a virus and it could mutate significantly before that. And so we may not get it hundred percent effective, but it's still better than nothing. Speaking of better than nothing, I think that's a good segue into our testing. <laughs> I got one more thing before we do. I was doing some research for this podcast and I found an article on scientific American that was from the beginning of this year that this is anything that's going to be out this year. 
but they're moving closer to a universal flu vaccine. Oh, I didn't know that. I didn't either until I was reading this. But what it is is it doesn't uh, – the way the current vaccine works is it doesn't strike at the T cells because it's not a live virus. And so in animal studies that they're doing at – I believe it's UCLA. Yeah. They're trying this new universal type vaccine that is activating those T cells like a live virus but is not making – people or the animals significantly sick so we may be 5 10 15 years from now looking at more of a universal flu vaccine that will be significantly more effective because of the way that it uh, activates our immune system you know and ben this is one of the things i talk to people about when we just talk about medicine in general is the way the speed at which we advance someday we're going to look back at some of the things we're doing now that are cutting edge and go oh my god we were barbarians like our children, our children, or maybe our grandchildren someday are going to be like, did you actually poke people with needles? Like, like they're going to be like, did you actually stab people on purpose? And we're like, yeah, that was the best thing we had. Sharp needles. And they're going to be like, oh, my God. <laughs> yeah, no, I agree. And I think talked about a future episode of looking at some, uh, looking back in medicine at some of the uh, ways that things were handled and kind of looking back on them with a little bit of humor of, hey, look how things were 200 years ago. And likewise, where we're at currently, 200 years from now, people are going to look back and, like you said, wow, they used needles. Like, that's horrible. Like, why would you have to poke someone and risk getting blood on you? Or why would you cause that pain when you could just put them in the scanner? And they would... Yeah, I I honestly don't think it'll be that long. I think we will see it before we retire. We will see advancements, maybe not like needleless, but we will see things like sub Q injections. I've already seen that they're trying to develop. It's basically like a patch, where it's like a transdermal that you could do it that way. So it's it's. I think we're going to see some major advancements, and that's one of the things that excites me about being an advanced practitioner right now is I feel like we're at the front of the wave. Like this is a good time to be in our profession and we are going to really lead a charge into how do we change how we treat people. I still want one of the little scanners like the ad on Star Trek where they could just run it over you and tell you what was wrong. I believe it was Phillips is trying to basically make a handheld ultrasound. So like they're like, oh, stethoscopes will be obsolete. You could just be able to look and listen to someone's chest all at the same time. I want to say it was Phillips. I think it's Phillips. That's pretty awesome. It is pretty awesome. So let's get on to uh, another little short block on testing before we get on to treatment. So some of the things you can do are the standard nose swab, which is ever so popular with people. Yeah. yeah I, I, anytime I order this test, I apologize to my patients, particularly the kids. I'm so sorry. I'm sorry. Oh, it sucks, and it usually involves like some type of uh, straitjacket apparatus to hold people down, or you hear a nurse going, don't punch me, <laughs> then you hear someone cough and gag and be mad for a minute, and now you have a flu test. And you're fairly certain that they are touching your brain when they do that. Oh, yeah, it's, it's uncomfortable. But one of the things I found, and I mean, uh, again, I'm not putting it down. There, there's multiple versions of the test. There's rapid in-office test. There's uh, send-off laboratory test, which I think is probably the most popular still. What surprised me is there is still a statistically positive chance of getting false negatives. Like, the patient may, in fact, have influenza, but the test is going to come back negative. 
you and I kind of talked briefly before we started, before we pushed record, and I think we're kind of on a disagreement at this. Like, I still ordered the flu test, uh, at least for the first several months while we're seeing the flu. Once it's pretty hotly embedded in this area, then I'll go ahead and stop testing, and unless patients request it, which I have had patients request it, and I certainly have no problem ordering it. But I don't test for it. I just call it kind of influenza-like illness. But some of that, as far as the positive flu test, is what gets reported back to the health department, the state health department, and then conversely back to the CDC so that they can track a lot of where the influenza is and, and where it, you know, so like the graphics that we see on the news, or a lot of come off of what the uh, those positive tests. And while I, I disagreed, I disagreed as in, what I currently do. Certainly you presented a lot of good information and made me go, well, maybe I need to do more. And to be fair, we're just now getting into flu season. So it's not like I've had a lot of cause to do it prior to now. But one of the one of the things while reading up on testing for flu, which was one of the most mind numbingly boring subjects of all time. Which is why we do um, you don't have to. Do what? Which is why we do the podcast, so that you don't have to. Exactly. Thank you, Ben. Basically, what it boils down to is whether you test or whether you don't test, whether you have a positive or whether you have a negative, if you clinically decide they need to be treated as if they have influenza, I'm going to be treating them anyways. As a matter of fact, they even have like a little decision tree, I think, it, again, on CDC website, where it's like, do they have these symptoms? Yes, no. Do they have this? Yes, no. Are they going to be doing this? Yes, no. And basically, it comes down to if they have symptoms, treat them. <laughs> so that's basically the mindset I've been having prior to flu season and leading into flu season, which has been, if I think they don't feel well, I'm going to treat them regardless. So the testing seemed like a moot point to me. Well, and if I do test and it's a negative I will talk to the patient and say, you know, I understand the testing is negative. There is a risk for a false negative. And maybe they just didn't get a good swab or, you know, just a truly a false negative. You know, based on your symptoms, clinically, I, I still think you got like an influenza-like illness. So I would still like to treat you accordingly. And most patients are okay with that. Um, like I said, but I have had some patients, particularly for like work purposes, like if they work in healthcare, they need the flu test to verify to their employer that they legitimately have the flu and they're not just taking a week off to go to Cancun. Though, I mean, if you have the wealth to just take a week off and go to Cancun, what are you doing in healthcare, period? Unless you're one of those cardiothoracic surgeons. Yeah, those guys, they're shifty. They're driving their Ferrari around, probably with leather gloves on, like a little racing cap. So, yeah, those guys could probably do it. But the rest of us, that's not happening. Anyway. <laughs> so this brings me to the last thing. This brings me to the, the final subject, which is treatment. So we've discussed the symptoms. Okay, we, we saw the symptoms. Now we, whatever, preventing it with them. Now we've tested them. So now you have this patient, Ben. What are we actually going to do to treat them? Well, you have a couple of options. And I say a couple of options. People are like, really? What? Well, I guess you have several. The first option is you can tell the patient. I've had patients say this to me. There are medications out there. Sometimes they work, sometimes they don't. Most people are going to get over this in, like I said, you know, that five to seven days. You're going to feel like crap, but lots of fluids, lots of fever reducers. Lay around and feel like crap. And some patients will be like, I don't want any medicine. Just let it run its course. So that's probably option number one. 
right, Tom? Correct. And honestly, for the majority of my patients, again, I haven't had too many people. I was like, oh, my God, you know, your death's doorstep. If they're not at that point, that's generally what I recommend. Uh, the first being hydration. Get, to, get that water, get that Gatorade, get that Powerade, whatever you need. Drink it down. Two is rest. And three is stay away from other people. There you go. I mean, that's the uh, that's the triad. And that triad works for most viruses, actually. Yeah. Also, and I guess I guess the the when I say stay away from other people, I should also include over the counter uh, remedies like Tylenol, Motrin. You know, your symptom relief. Because I try and tell people, for the most part, we're not going to treat the virus; we're going to treat your symptoms, and people understand that. But. One of the things I was looking up, and again, we may or may not totally disagree on that, is the use of antivirals. I have used antivirals before in the past on four, four patients. Uh, the most popular, and I think they even had commercials last year, Tamiflu, which is one that most people have heard about. Yes, Tamiflu is probably the most popular, and it's available in both liquid and pill form. And one of the nice things, and this is probably the only super nice thing I'm going to be saying about any of the antivirals is the span from 14 days old to death you can give them tamiflu so i mean that's a pretty that's a pretty wide range of treatment options and from what i recall it's a pretty mild side effect profile to as far as interactions with other medications so i mean you don't have to worry about that we don't have to worry about that but we will cover some of the antiviral side effects in general here in just yeah, a second no, i'm just meaning as far as the interactions with other medications um, so your dosages for adults 75 milligrams twice a day for five days if they are positive for flu or influenza like illness you can also use it prophylactically which would be the 75 milligram pill and you do that for up to 10 days and then children it's a weight-based dose the next two medications are a little different, uh, and if I butcher the names, I apologize to whoever's going to write me an email telling me I'm a moron, but the next one is Relenza, and it is a powder-based inhalation. It is good for seven years or older. It does have some contraindications that seem a little weird, is it can't be used by anybody with asthma or COPD, which is one of the reasons you would give somebody an antiviral if they were sick is because they were chronically ill with asthma or COPD. That would make sense to me, yeah, I agree. Yes, and the third and final, which honestly I didn't know much about, and it makes sense, is called Rapavab, and it is an intravenous given medication, unlike the other, which is both the Relenza and the Tamiflu are five-day courses. The IV medication is a one-time dose and it is good for two years or older. And so our brethren and sisterin, as Ben likes to say, ha, there's a there's a laugh from Kyle, the sound engineer. Um, our brethren and sisterin that are in acute care might know a little more about that or have better application rates for that. But those are the three main medications that I saw. So, Tom, you mentioned the side effects earlier. What, what have you seen as far as side effect profile? Honestly, and this is one of the reasons... I am not a big proponent of the antivirals is first of all, it has to be started within two days of symptoms. It can be started later, but it's most effective within two days of symptoms. So if they come to you in your office and they're like, Hey, I've been feeling crappy for a week. Guess what? You're already out of your window. It's a five day course, except for the IV as we already we've already talked about and heck, their symptom profile may be less than the course of the medication. So there's that. And, it may only shorten the symptoms by drum roll. No, no drum roll. Okay. 
Thank you. Uh, it may only shorten the drum, <laughs> the drum roll. It may only shorten the symptoms by one day. So we're going to be giving these patients with all these side effects I'm about to list off, all these medications and, and courses and everything with all these side effects to possibly shorten their illness by one day. So I guess to me, unless they're chronically ill, it just doesn't seem worth it to me. So what is this? What, what are the side effects, Tom? Well, the side effects are going to sound awfully familiar. So the side effects can include nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, dizziness, cough, runny or stuffy nose with nasal congestion, headaches, and my personal favorite, in quotation marks, behavioral side effects. Which I think that one you're going to see more in children. And that is one thing I talk to my patients about or my parents about is, hey, if you start giving this medication and your kid does a complete 180 in their behaviors and they're not acting like themselves, stop the medication because it's likely the cause of it. I've had patients who've had this happen to them, and it's legit. Like, it, it's a complete 180 on as far as behavior. And so that's, I guess that is part of the uh, scary side effects for me as a new practitioner is at what point, other than, like I said, the chronically or, or immunocompromised, why would I risk giving my patient a medication that is going to replicate the very symptoms that they're on to possibly shorten it by one day. It just does it. The trade-off, the pros, the cons, you know, whatever you, risk versus benefit doesn't seem worth it. Which makes me wonder because, you know, the way they do those clinical trials as far as that goes is, you know, they have to list every side effect, which is why with some medications like some of the diabetes medication, like some of the GLP ones out there, you'll see the listing of influenza as a side effect. Not so much that, that's probably a true side effect of the medication, but that it occurred during the clinical trial on a patient and therefore they had to report it. So I wonder how many of those symptoms the patient actually had because they were sick. And and I honestly don't know. So if, if they do a clinical trial where they're not sick and they develop those symptoms, then, hey, if you know that, let me know. Because I honestly don't know that. But if they give it to them while they're sick and they already have a lot of those symptoms, I wonder how many of those are legitimately just because of the illness itself. Oh, I completely agree. However... If you have influenza with a chance of, we'll just say, headache, and I give you Tamiflu, and you still develop the headache, then what good did the medication do? Well, it lessened it by one day, Tom. You just said that earlier. <laughs> and a little side note, a little, little personal action on, on this. Uh, have you ever taken an antiviral? I have not. We gave, uh, when my my daughter was about three months old, she was positive for influenza, and her pediatrician at the time recommended use, use of Tamiflu, so we did. Uh, we gave it to her the first dose, and within an hour or so, horrible diarrhea. We thought, okay, maybe that didn't have anything to do with the medication. It was just happened. Give her the second dose, same thing happened, and we determined, you know what, we're going to just, we don't want her to get dehydrated. I mean, at three months old. So we just took the risk of letting the influenza run its course as opposed to giving her the Tamiflu and causing horrible diarrhea. Have you taken an antiviral tone? I have. I, I will say, in all truth and fairness, it was not one of these three. It was, I was an ICU nurse, and I had got a blood exposure from an IV drug user that was being ventilated, and so there was a high risk of me getting being exposed to hepatitis, HIV, etc. And so I go down to the ER, I do my thing, and they give me the first dose of medication, they give me the prescriptions, that was our hospital protocol, everyone's protocol might be a little different, but that's what we did, and they give me the prescriptions, like, okay, you need to fill these, and I noticed one of the medications was an anti-nausea medication, and I'm like, what do I need this for? They're like, oh, because you're going to be deathly ill 
for the next several months until you're done taking this medication. And I was like, oh, thanks. <laughs> I mean, don't get me wrong. I don't want the package any worse than anybody else, the, the HIV, the HIQ, whatever you want to call it. But I'll tell you right now, the thought of being perpetually sick for three months was an unpleasant experience. So I maybe maybe that's another reason I'm anti-antiviral. Ooh, anti-antiviral. <laughs> I like that. No, I was gonna say something stupid about anti-anti. So <laughs> it's like a double negative with like you got to carry the one or something. <laughs> is there an integer in there? So there is another option uh, if you don't want to go the antiviral route. And full disclosure, I learned about this last year. Uh, it was in a Facebook group. And somebody had posted, you know, in regards to influenza using elderberry or elderberry syrup. And so I thought, okay, this is another one of those nut jobs that uh, is all holistic and refusing any type of medications. And we're going to cure everything with cinnamon. Oh, that's what we should have done last time. Damn it, Tom. <laughs> lesson, lesson learned. I'm sure we'll do another one someday. So I actually did some research a year ago, and I completed some more research for this episode. But there are small studies out that show that for influenza in particular, elderberry syrup does have statistically significant improvement in symptoms, uh, very similar to the antivirals. Well, that is interesting. Here's my question. What's the age range? Like, what can I start telling patients they can take this? Well, Thomas, as far as the age range, uh, you know... These aren't evaluated by the FDA because it's not an actual medication. It's more of an, a holistic approach. I've seen some things that are out there that say over the age of one, and then I've seen some that say older than that. So I, I would uh, recommend that if you're going to recommend elderberry to your patients, that you determine which one you want to recommend or have them do some research to determine which one they feel would be the best for them. I actually did pull up a study... There's an evidence-based systematic review of elderberry by the National Standard Research Collaboration. And so they were looking at a lot of the things that elderberry can be used for. And everything had unclear or scientific evidence. And I say everything as far as bronchitis, constipation, gingivitis, hyperlipidemia, obesity. The only one that had a grade of a B which would be good scientific evidence, so statistically significant evidence of benefit, was for the treatment of influenza. And cost-wise, you're looking at a significant cheaper option as well. Tamiflu, if you don't have insurance, can be several hundred dollars. And elderberry syrup can be, you know, about 15. Well, I guess I know which route my kid's going to be going. <laughs> well, and so I do, when I have a patient who I suspect has influenza or influenza-like illnesses, I cover all this with them. I cover... Do they want me to test or not? I cover, here's some options. We can do an antiviral Tamiflu. Like I said, sometimes it works, sometimes it won't. It's going to lessen your symptoms statistically about a day. and But you're still going to feel like crap for a majority of the time. There's elderberry syrup, which is an option as well. Again, it might work, it might not. But you're not going to be out a whole lot of money. And so I just try to educate them and give them the best options that they can make the best informed decision for themselves. Well, honestly, at the end of the day, especially with a topic like influenza, realistically, that's what we're doing for everybody. So we just, I, I think we, it's hardest for us to keep that in mind. 
Uh, and that's why I tell the patient is I wish this was simpler. Like when you have an ear infection, I give you an antibiotic, ear infection goes away, everybody's happy. Unfortunately, when it comes to something like flu or influenza or influenza-like diagnosis, we're really having to treat the symptoms and let the virus run its course. And that's not always the easiest for me as a practitioner, let alone for the patient that's suffering. And the other thing that I found that I thought was interesting when I was doing some research for this episode is there's currently a clinical trial. It's on clinicaltrials.gov for evaluating the safety and clinical efficacy of elderberry extract in patients with influenza. And this is actually going, this is through the Cleveland Clinic, and it's going through 2020. You know, if you get diagnosed or you have patients that are diagnosed with influenza and they're willing to take elderberry, they could be part of a uh, clinical study. It looks like half of the group will get elderberry extract. Half of the group will get placebos to determine if there is a legitimate um, effect of the elderberry. They anticipate that the study, the study completion date will be May 15th, 2020. So might see some new stuff coming out as far as that goes. Oh, yeah, we're going to see new stuff. All right. Like that couple dollar bottle of elderberry juice is going to jump to about $85 when Big Pharma gets a hold of it because now it's a medication. That's what's going to happen. Well, let's hope not, but I guess it's always a possibility. That's that's the bright side of Tom, just just shining through right there. <laughs> well, Tom, do you have anything else to wrap up this episode? Other than I think it's social media time again. Well, if you liked this episode or if you didn't, what we would like you to do is reach out to us on our Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter, all at Just Some Podcast. Or you can reach us on our website, www.justsomepodcast.com, or... You can email us, admin, at justsomepodcast.com. And folks, just so you know, he lives for that, to be completely honest. Like, he, you should see the smile on his face when he gets to just shout out all that social media. It's like he practices it at home. I haven't asked his wife yet, but I might text her later and be like, hey, does he just stand around in the shower practicing that because he really loves it? She's going to tell me yes. You know it. It's the highlight of my week, Tom. It's it's the highlight of both of our weeks. Uh, but really, other than that, people know your game, know your symptoms, know your treatment options, and uh, get prepared because much like winter, the flu is coming. That was a good Game of Thrones reference for people who didn't get that. Yeah. As a matter of fact, you, we might have to have uh, Kyle, the sound engineer, cut that and put that at the beginning. <laughs> we can probably do that, you know. Uh, but yeah, no, I mean, it's legit. Oh yeah, that wave is a coming. And if you are, don't think it's coming, then I don't know where you're working <laughs> because people are going to come in droves. Maybe they're working like urology where they don't see this. Okay, well, that's a valid point. I know a urology NP and she, yeah, she, she was probably lucky and don't have to deal with but, I mean, it's it's one of those things. Uh, yeah, she's lucky she doesn't have to deal with flu or people that think they have the flu or people that heard that a person they know one time had the flu, so they thought they better get checked out. Those are my favorites. But at the same time, she's dealing with, uh, you know, urology. So there's that. Wieners and butts. All day long. Every day. Every day. Um, let's put a bow on this episode. If you're still listening to this episode and you like what we're doing, the best thing that you can do for our show, because we don't have any sponsors currently, is to tell your friends. Share our stuff on Facebook. Let everybody know, hey, we listen to these guys. They're kind of funny. And they do give us some good information. Rarely. No, that's just you. Yeah, 
that's also true, or I'm in the background yelling fake news, which I'm sure is being getting audited or uh, edited out. I almost said audited out. You better audit that out. So. <laughs> well, Tom, why don't you take us home? Well, everybody, I think we had a great episode, and for Tom, I am saying that is all, and I am getting off the air. And this is Ben. Hope you have a wonderful week.